Hello and welcome to the Cannabis Minority Report powered by the NCIA. I am your host, Khadija Adams, founder of Girl Get That Money, here for our weekly check-in with minority-owned companies, companies that support social equity applicants and or have a social equity program, our social equity applicants themselves, as well as industry leaders. This episode is sponsored by Girl Get That Money, a business empowerment coaching and consultancy firm that focuses on women in business and women aspiring to be in business. Joining me today is my co-host, Ms. Alexis Olive of Olive View Media. Hi, Alexis. Hi, Khadija. Good to have you on today. As always, a pleasure. I'm excited for our guest today. Fantastic. And that brings us to our special guest and our new co-host, Ms. Margot Bruner. She is a compliance and public affairs consultant at Perpetual Harvest Sustainable Solution. Hello, Margot. How are you? Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Good to have you on. You know, I'm going to start off with the news like we always do. I'm excited about the news. And here's something I'm really excited about, you guys. I just moved back to Texas. That's number one. Only to read that Parallels Good Blend Texas launches the first medical cannabis capsule format for patients in the Texas Compassionate Use Program. So Good Blend Texas is a retail brand of Parallel, um, which is one of the nation's largest privately held multi-state cannabis operators. Um, they had announced a couple of days ago that they launched the first cannabis capsule for patients registered in the Texas Compassionate Use Program. Got to read more about it to find out more about what this capsule is all about, you guys. And then San, San Diego actually um, may just loosen the cannabis rules to help minorities gain a piece of this lucrative industry. I'm excited about that. They're going to be launching a comprehensive analy um, analyze of, um, or analysts, I'm sorry, of its laws governing cannabis businesses to see how they could you know, be loosened up to allow minorities and low-income residents to become a part of this, um, this lucrative industry. And mind you, they should have done this a long time ago, but I'm glad that they're doing something about it now. Now, cannabis social equity, as it relates to cannabis social equity, seeds planted but will they grow? You know, social equity has been a selling point for cannabis legalization in many states. Um, New York, for instance, which last month, they broadly legalized cannabis use. And they set a goal of getting 50% of licenses to minorities and other social equity applicants. I would say that that is a step in the right direction. But so far, the goals have far outstripped reality. And so partly due to the legal entanglements um, as states look to broaden diversity in the cannabis boardrooms and the retail shops, production plants, as well as greenhouses. And then finally, Mita, Arizona. I'm so proud of Mita, Arizona and Dimitri Downing and what he's been able to do and put together with a free social equity mentorship program rollout um, that they had. It took place in January. And so what they're doing is really, it's actually designed um, to help navigate new opportunities in cannabis. And so Mita, first of all, is a nonprofit organization that's founded by Dimitri Downing in Arizona. And they are calling for all cannabis leaders who would like to contribute to this curriculum to go ahead and reach out. So for more information, you guys go to Mita-Arizona.com or Mita-AZ. 
www.thecoachmaker.com. So coming up after these messages, we're going to meet our special guest and, and our new co-host, Ms. Margot Bruner. Again, she's the compliance and public affairs consultant at Perpetual Harvest Sustainable Solutions. We'll learn more about Margot, what she does in the industry, and hear her take on social equity right after these messages. So we're very proud to be NCIA members. Uh, we've been members for the last three years. And I got to say, every event, every conference, every uh, you know get-together that's sponsored by NCIA is a good opportunity not just to meet uh, you know, others in the industry, obviously, uh, but really to talk about the industry as a whole, where it's going, where it's been, our challenges to date. We feel really grateful to NCIA for including us in the educational tracks the last three years. We've been at every seed to sale and most of the shows in, on the West Coast. Every time we're here, I always have a sense that it's not just another one of these industry conferences, that it's actually um, that it is the industry's lobbying arm and that it's an organization that is protecting all of us and fighting for the legal future that we all need. At the end of the day, the most important and impactful thing for us is the community. It's really about the people, the people that NCIA brings together and, and the events like this one that NCIA organizes for for us to gather. If you're in this industry, NCIA is trying to influence it positively for you. If you're not speaking up, if you're not participating in committees, you're missing out on a huge window. You know, everyone wants change. Well, this is one of the ways you, you do it. You don't have to be a member of the NCIA. You could just do nothing and let them do everything for you and fix all the problems that need to be fixed for the industry to work properly. And you could just sit on the sidelines. That would be fine, but it'd be better if you were a member. are back with Margot Bruner, the Director of Compliance and Diversity Inclusion for Red, White, and, and Bloom. Um, Bruner supports the legal compliance and government affairs team by assisting with on-site operational compliance across all business entities of Mid-American Growers and Red, White, and Bloom. She also sits on the Board of Directors of the Minority Cannabis Business Association and is the, is the former political director of the Michigan Cannabis Industry Association. Welcome, Margot. How are you today? I am well. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I am the former director of compliance for Red, White, and Bloom. Um, oh, currently, I yes, I am Perpetual Harvest, but that is all part of the history of Margot in this space. So, <laughs> Awesome. So tell our viewers about your journey into the cannabis industry, Margot. Um, it started, I've been here about, I guess, five years now. It feels so long um, in this space, like we move in dog years. But um, I, my journey actually starts with you to some extent. Um, back in 2016, I live in the state of Michigan, and we are, at that time, we're a, a medically legal state. We are a fully legal state now today. Um, and I just was really curious about the industry. I had seen an episode um, called the Mary Janes on Weeda Kit, and they were talking about women and how they were on par to have so many C-suite positions in this particular industry. Um, and my background was supply chain and benchmarking. And so some of the things that kind of overlaid and I was like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested in this. Um, so I went to work and I bought a ticket to Denver because 
I was like, you know, Denver seems like, you know, they have kind of figured this out to some degree. Um, and at that time, I didn't have any clue about what I was going to do, where I was going to go. I was just going to see the sites. And I found some things on LinkedIn and meet up. And I, and I ended up at a meeting with you. And you were the first African-American woman that I ever met in this industry. Um, and I was just completely intrigued. And I kind of went home like, you know, where where is this group of people in Michigan? Where is this tribe of people that are the policymakers and, you know, the attorneys and cultivators and activists? Um, and I ended up at the launch meeting for the Metro Detroit chapter of Women Grow. I went on to become the market leader for the Metro Detroit chapter of Women Grow. Um, and while I was doing that, um, anyone who doesn't know about Women Grow, it, it was a women's networking event. And we used to have a meeting essentially um, every first Thursday. And so I met a gentleman who was a CPA in this particular space. And he was just, you know, intrigued about my overall background. He's like, you know, would you be interested in potentially making some policy? And I was like, sure. Because at this point, like, I didn't completely know my path forward. I knew this is where I was supposed to be, and, but I didn't know exactly what I was supposed to do. Like, as it turns out, it wasn't one single thing I was here to do. Um, so um, I, and I became a commissioner for the Michigan State Police and their impaired driving committee. I represented qualified and registered patients. And I made like a really scientific piece of policy about what per se limits were in the state of Michigan. And parallel to that, I was part of uh, our adult use campaign that brought legalization. So I was very familiar with the initiative. I went on to become part of our attorney general's marijuana policy work group. So I just had a really wide understanding of the law and the intent of the law and the evolution of the law in this particular space. Um, then went on to become the political director and registered lobbyist for the Michigan Cannabis Industry Association um, and a compliance and corporate social responsibility consultant for perpetual harvest. And also the former director for um, wow. Red, White, and Bloom. So and it's not over yet. So <laughs> like any dot dot dot. So yeah. so it, it wasn't by any means straightforward. It it wasn't a plan that I made like A B C D. I just committed myself to not saying no to any opportunity that came to me, and that just led me to some very interesting places. I bet it did. I know that Alexis has a bunch of questions for you, so I'm going to turn it over to Alexis, but you got me all excited over here because, you know, you have the entrepreneurial spirit and you said something that just really resonated with me. You said you had the commitment and it really takes that as an entrepreneur, especially in this industry, if you intend on being here for a while. So I'll turn it over to Alexis. Oh, well, I just love that. Yeah. That you were just kind of somewhat going with the flow, but following your intuition and see where it led you. It's beautiful. Um, well, I just wanted to kind of go back a little bit more to like the root of your passion for the cannabis plant. Um, where did that begin? Perhaps like, you know, I don't know, when you were younger, um, what was the cause or what ignited well, the passion for you? Um, well, I mean, I consumed cannabis since I was in high school, so I did not, number one, believe it to be a harmful or illegal substance. Um, and I just thought that the laws around it are just like completely asinine. Like, I mean, like it is a plant that's illegal, like making a cactus illegal or, right. you know, any other plant that just grows in its natural state illegal, um, just made no sense whatsoever. Um, and so I, I think logically I took that approach. It's a policy making. 
Um, and that kind of led me to many different paths and it led me to also, also many different responsibilities. Um, when I was bringing part of the campaign to bring adult use legalization to Michigan, I did a lot of interaction in African-American communities and underserved communities um, and black churches and AARP meetings, which are not always the most cannabis friendly places to show up. Um, <laughs> to, say, to say the least, right? Yes. <laughs> but I mean, like I have a very just logical approach to the conversation. Um, and it allowed me to, to get a lot of headway with people that were in opposition to that. And in, in honoring that, like I understood that their opposition was not just opposition opposition for the sake of, it was rooted in fear because people had been over-policed, you know, people had been harmed, either people sure. firsthand or, you know, people's loved ones had been harmed. So um, I just had a, a really acute awareness of that. Um, our adult use legalization bill did not have expungement in it. It, since it. We now since have passed bills, but at that particular point in time, like we weren't a day one equity state in Michigan, we did not have expungement. And so that was a lot of the pushback that I got from those communities. Like, hey, how are you gonna make it legal over here and people still have records. And so I think that, you know, I kind of stand in that gap because I understand today's leading provider the of indoor cannabis cultivation mobile vertical racking systems by all means Pit not perfect stems from um, a and I also foundation built during the past 40 years with its roots in retail catering to the largest so and most well-respected retail brands worldwide that, you know kind of Pit mobile storage systems incorporated served as the perfect breeding ground for what's become the standard for going vertical throughout North America it's impressive U.S.-based facilities factory direct sales cost-effective um, and efficient build methods that, that keen is focus one thing on the customer kind of are all requirements of the highly demanding wow, retail thank you so industry much for that Pitmobile has dominated for decades. Of, you know, this dominance has carved the path for the creation and rapid and growth of Pitmobile. Speaking your truth and leading by From example. the back rooms of America's thank largest you. retailers <laughs> to indoor commercial so growers of the world's top cannabis cultivators, the seeds of Pit horticulture have been planted. Now, a few um, years later, and with hundreds of facilities increasing their yield money and partnership and with Pip Horticulture, we are so, the go-to um, provider for all things racking and storage and throughout the industry. When people Let speak about culture, elevate your cultivation today. Social equity, I often explain to them, it's, it's restitution. It is an acknowledgement that there were harms made to communities, and how do we... I wouldn't even say necessarily fix those because the, the harms were social harms, but we're trying to, you know, fix some of those gaps, monetarily speaking. And that can mean multitude of things. It can mean um, at the top of that ownership. It can mean a, a variety of things on down to community benefits and or resources in this particular space. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that equity means something a little bit different everywhere to, to different people. Mm-hmm. Um in this, and, and I always clarify that because I'm in the state of Michigan and Michigan is a non-affirmative action state. So there's no policy that can be created essentially for any protected class of people. So there's not, even though there's intention to have diversity and inclusion, mm-hmm. that is not part of our law that this is supposed to be a diverse initiative. Um, in some other states, it, it does call out specific groups of people that have been harmed. 
Um, but I think that's very difficult to do. Like I, I applaud the, the New York program. I think it's amazing. I think that there was a large percentage committed um, to going back to community benefits, but New York was unique because so many people went to jail in New York and right. so many people became displaced because they, the housing authority, like so many people live in New York housing authority and that cannabis conviction was enough to get you and your whole family put out of the place that you lived. So um, the implications are, are beyond just ownership because people were, were stripped of a number of things. So um, I think that it's important to clarify that in all conversations because there's a certain expectation that doesn't always apply. Like equity is a really elusive term from place to place. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. So should consideration be given to all social equity applicants as a whole, or should it be opened up to all companies and entrepreneurs who fall under that social equity um, qualification or umbrella, if you will, and not just for social equity applicants per se? I think that people, honestly, in the state of Michigan, it just applying it to this one particular state, um, there are roughly 181 cities that have been designated social equity. The majority of them, not minority majority cities, but people went to jail in all of the places. Like people go to jail in rural America as well. Um, so, so people, the harm, the harm is what we're addressing. I think that there are some things that are unique um, when it comes to you know, black and brown communities, indigenous communities, because they were over-policed even more aggressively than some other communities um, and separated from resources. And that and that's still lingering and stinging to today. Um, so I think that there are also people who are minority operators who may not fit into that really small box of, did you live in the zip code, but still socially experience those same ills of lack of access to capital, et cetera. So I, I think that we have a responsibility um, of including as many people as possible who have the opportunity to take advantage of the industry. If I give a very tall order opportunity to a community that's been oppressed in many ways, like how do they access capital? How do they understand the inner workings of government and you know all the things that it takes to become a licensed cannabis owner from you know an architectural plan or you know talking to city council or lobbyists a CPA. I mean there are a lot of things that go into legal cannabis ownership. And I don't think it's as simple as just saying like well hey like we gave them the opportunity and they didn't like you didn't give them a ladder to step up to that opportunity. So I I think that when you give that opportunity you have to really contextualize it in as how do I make as many people possible as possible able to take advantage of the opportunity, not just, you know, giving them an opportunity that, you know, is a, is a tall order and only a few people may be able to participate. Right. Well, and, you know, we don't want to just throw money at everybody, right? We want to make sure that they have the, the education that they need in order to successfully run a business in the industry. And, um, you know, that's why I really like the um, social equity um, program that um, MEDA has and many other organizations that we're going to be reaching out to, um, to participate in, you know, providing different modules and learning materials for social equity and social equity applicants. Because, you know, there's so many people that I've met in this industry 
um, and people who are coming into the industry um, who like you and I, when we first came in, we didn't know where we fit in. We had to literally <laughs> find our way, right? Yes. You know, and so we have so many that fall under the social equity umbrella. But what I noticed is that the education is not um, affordable in some places um, for them. And then, you know, where there's some of these free programs, they offer the free programs and then want to upsell you. Um, you know, they give you so much in the in the free part of it, but then want to upsell you on the rest. And so that's why I really like what media is doing. And, you know, here at the diversity, equity and inclusion committee, our committee here at the NCIA, we're actually reaching out to other organizations who are, you know, putting together programs like that to see how we can come together and collaborate. Because I honestly believe that, you know, with the proper, um, the proper guidance, I believe that our everyone who falls under the social equity umbrella will be able to have a sustainable business, you know, when they go through the proper, you know, education. Um, and then, you know, what do you do with funding when you get it? How do you disperse it, et cetera, et cetera. So I think education, wouldn't you agree education is far most important than, than equity first, right? Yes, um, the, the money definitely has to come secondary to the co collective understanding of all the things that you're stepping into. Um, I recently did, you know, a five-part series that was sponsored by Wheat Maps, a cannabis Q&A that was local for Wayne County. So all social equity applicants and people could attend, not specifically for social equity. Um, but it was the opportunity to answer questions in real time, almost like impromptu consulting. Like some of the people that are there are, you know, uh, attorneys and like, I need to ask an attorney one question. Like, I don't want to necessarily pay for a whole consultation yet. I just, I have that one burning question that I need to answer, or how do I find information? Like, where's the link on the state website to this program? Like little bits of information like that can be really elusive and delay people's interest in this particular industry. So I think that when people start to campaign for legalization, like they need to bring the education right then and there, because when you turn on the spigot, then I'll be ready and understand how that information that has had an opportunity to grow in, into an opportunity. Um, but when we started a little bit late, it, it gets so hectic because you need to apply immediately and you're still kind of learning on the fly here right. and you can lose a lot of money that way. Absolutely, and make a lot of mistakes. And yes. if you don't have the money to cover your mistakes, you're out of business. You know, that's generally yes. how it works. Alexis, did you have anything you wanted to add? Well, I was just wanting to add is, um, yes, the basis of everything, I believe, is education. And with the education, the proper education, people will understand the need for restitution, which I think, which was very important that you brought that up because people that are released from, from prison due to cannabis crimes, charges, I believe, and we actually had this conversation this morning, they should be treated as survivors of war. Um, and they need that rehabilitation and they should be the first ones that are getting to um, get into this industry um, because they had to pay, pay a very high price um, for this illegalization. So, you know, yeah. education, education, education and restitution and rehabilitation. Yes. I agree with that so much. So, so Margo, tell me what needs to happen to ensure that benefits are equitably dispersed and how do we actually manage something like that? I think that's a really complicated question because the ask is so different, you know, from place to place. Um, 
the barrier of entry of ownership varies from place to place. So in some places it might be really easy, like Oklahoma is extremely easy to get into the industry in Oklahoma. Like, will yeah, the New York 10, market 000? look like that? Yes. For a cannabis girl, look, I'm going to Oklahoma. <laughs> and, and Oklahoma has the highest number statistically of minority ownership of any other state. And you would not think Oklahoma when you think minority ownership, um, but it was accessible and people took, you know, advantage of an opportunity that, you know, they felt was accessible to them. I'm not sure what that will look like in New York. Like if I put million dollar price tags on 50% of the licenses and I say, you come from, you know, this specific area, will there be people that are interested? Yes. Um, but quite frankly, like when the licensure is a very competitive process. And I think that that makes things a little bit predatory sometimes to, to introduce those circumstances. Mm-hmm. Well, and I agree with you 100%. I have to say that, you know, it's kind of hard to say, you know, how, how we actually can manage that because it is so different. Your ask may be different from the next person's ask. Um, that, you know, it varies from state to state. So what type of information um, would you like to hear coming up on our show? Like what kind of guests would you like to hear us um, um, interview and what type of topics would you like to hear discussed? So um, there are a number of people, but the person that I I love to hear speak like is Sayun Adedeje. Yes. Because yes. Sayun is a collective of both sides of the equation. Um, yep. and, and he's a person like you that brings a lot of light, but like the one thing that he said that like really stood out to me was when he tells his whole story, he was like, I didn't have a million dollars, but I understood that I was worth a million dollars. And know that that I was right. the million dollars and that I was the bag. And like, that is what carries you. Like, it's yeah. not an exact formula. Like, I can't write it down for you, you know, like an equation. Um, yeah. You just gotta like really, really believe in yourself and trust in yourself and some, have some very serious conversations with yourself to remain in this industry. Um, mm-hmm. because it is so many things. And for me, especially because I, I, I have worked with and worked in corporate cannabis, like I see how much money they raise. Like it, right. and it, it is astronomical in comparison to um, the resources that are, that are available, you know, for minority and social equity applicants. So it, it, it gets really, really complicated because the bar gets raised higher and higher and higher and higher. Mm-hmm. And you know, what's, what's really interesting is that minorities actually contribute $1.38 trillion into the American marketplace. And mind you, this is statistics from this uh, U.S. Census Bureau dating back to 2016. They haven't even released a new one yet. Okay. But so if you would just scale that up, right, I'm sure it's over 1.38 trillion now, but minorities, we contribute a lot. And then what kills me is that we actually spend, we're the customers, we're spending the money. And what the hell do you mean? You don't have money for us. Like that, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't fit for me, you know? And so that's why I'm so passionate about it, passionate about interviewing people such as yourself, you know, professionals like yourself who understand policy, who write policy, who can have conversations and really, really teach, you know, people who fall under social equity, right? Teach minorities and not just people of color, but also veterans, you know, because our veterans actually now fall under minorities the way that they're treated, right? And so I just really believe, like Alexis says, that when we have 
incarcerated. I like to, I like to call them ex-offenders. I don't like to call anyone convicts or felons and all of that. I think once you serve your time, you've served your time. You're, you're, a, you're an ex-offender. So as an ex-offender, I believe that coming out of that, they should be rehabilitated. They should be um, re-educated and they should be allowed to work on some of these cultivation farms. In fact, we were talking about that this morning, right, Alexis? Yeah, definitely. Um, I just believe that um, this is still a startup industry. <laughs> so there's a lot of businesses that are starting up. So it's even harder to be a startup in a startup industry, um, especially as a minority um, that may have, um, you know, issues gathering capital right away. Mm -hmm. um, and we just have to keep teaching each other and learning. Um, but we also need to take advantage of this progressive industry um, while it's still in its infancy somewhat because it's going to take off and we can't get left behind and we have to do something different than's been done in all the other industries. So actually put, um, you know, actual structure and standards for the way we're making sure that there is equity guaranteed. Absolutely. And women in, so, in C-suite positions as well, because even though it's supposedly higher in the cannabis industry, the percentage of women that are in leadership and ownership positions, it's not nearly where it needs to be. Yeah, but it, it's a little bit complicated because like you said, it is a startup industry and it's a startup industry for everybody. And if it's a startup industry for you and you're operational now and you, right. like you're sitting on a war chest, I think that you can do a lot more things than the average startup. Like, I mean, from a business perspective, if, if you are a startup and you're borrowing money from me and you're spending a large percentage of your money, you know, in, in, in social responsibility, I think it's honorable and it might be part of your brand and there might be a strategy there, but I also think that you are operating on my capital. So, <laughs> so I think that it gets complicated there. Um, and I think that as an industry, it is our responsibility to hold a very high standard and to bring people along who don't totally understand this, but everybody doesn't totally understand this. And there are people that look at it like, well, I'm not the person that arrested you. Like the government arrested you and the government is not issuing restitution to you. The government is passing that on to me as part of my licensure responsibility. Um, in, a, in, a, in an environment where I'm also paying 280E taxes. So I, mm. I think that the margins are not extremely large. And, and I think that that is a misnomer about the average cannabis industry business. It's not an MSO. Like they don't have the resources that people think that they have in this particular space to be able to do major spins like that. Yep, you're absolutely right. Well, I tell you, and it's like a, it's, it's like a catch-22, right? It's like yes. a catch-22. It, it yes. really is. And it's like, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. And then, <laughs> you know, what, what's in the middle? You, you yes. know? As an investor, you understand, like, that's my money. <laughs> exactly, right? And I don't want my money going towards paying your personal bills. So, yes. you know, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know what, Margo, I want to thank you. We want to thank you so much for being a guest on our show. And we're looking forward to having you co-host with us as we bring on more guests. Um, to talk about social equity, to talk about social justice, to talk about diversity and inclusion in this cannabis space. And so I want to just say that the mission of the DEI committee is to educate, to advocate, to engage, and empower the community of cannabis 
and our members by cultivating partnerships with other nonprofit organizations with similar goals and provide resources that creates and sustains an environment that is inclusive, equitable, and diverse. We are committed to building a culture that respects our members and celebrates their contributions as we work together to strengthen this cannabis community. You know, what are your 2021 predictions, Margot? Please tell us that. Oh, I mean, the stakes are getting really, really high now because um, so many states are opening up. There are so many um, MSOs that are now, you know, having a footprint in more than one state. I really, I mean, this is just my personal passion because I have a supply chain background and I'm on NCIA's um, uh, Interstate Commerce um, Committee. committee as well. But I just have a true interest in interstate commerce and what that starts to look like. Like we're under a, a place where we don't have full scale federal legalization, but we have so many states that are legal. Will these states start to work together on their own? Yeah. Yeah, I think federal legalization is coming, whether they like it or not, it is coming. The majority of the world, you know, is on the side of cannabis. And so, you know, and and just in America alone, what is it? Over 74% of Americans, they want cannabis to be legalized. And so much so that you see senators coming in, you know, former senators, you know, former politicians, former law enforcement, you see athletes now, you see celebrities now. It's incredible who's come, the people that are coming into the industry right now. And so I think one of my predictions is that federal legalization is going to happen within the next two to four years. Maybe four years. I don't know. I think Joe Biden, I mean, he's for maybe medical. I'm not sure his feelings on adult use and whether they approve it federally or not, like time waits for no man. I mean, the states have done it in silos. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily the best model ever, but I mean, like they're definitely getting it done in record time. Like every day, a new state comes on board. Absolutely. And you know what? And and then they're coming on board. What, What I like about it, you know, everyone says California started the industry in 1996 with medical. And I agree with that, but I have to believe that Colorado, when they, you know, legalized for adult use, you know, they set uh, a very high bar and um, many of these states, they saw what Colorado was able to do and they just started popping and coming on board and coming on board so much so that even California legalized um, for adult use. And so I'm just excited. Alexis, what are your predictions for 2021 for the cannabis industry? Well, I'm just um, very hopeful for how rapid we're breaking the stigma because there's people like you women here that are just, you know, living as true examples of being able to connect with the earth and help people and and just bring justice to our communities and health and wealth. And I do believe because, you know, even like the the can of curious group, maybe the older people or uh, people that have just been so scared and stigma of the stigmatization, they're finally just being awakened. <laughs> and because I was just reading the Rolling Stones, it was saying, oh, is it just me? Or it said something about, no, you're not high. There are a lot of states legalizing cannabis. <laughs> so it's coming in full force. So I'm really excited um, for this, for this next year. 
Absolutely. Well, I'm super excited, you guys. I want to just say that we want to thank our sponsors um, with our DEI program. Um, sponsors want to thank them so much. Um, really appreciate their support. If you're looking to and want to um, donate to the NTIA, go to thecannabisindustry.org to do just that. We're going to take just a little bit of break and we're going to come back and finalize and close up right after these messages. Today's leading provider of indoor cannabis cultivation mobile vertical racking systems, PIP Horticulture stems from a firmly planted foundation built during the past 40 years. With its roots in retail and catering to the largest and most well-respected retail brands worldwide, PIP Mobile Storage Systems Incorporated has served as the perfect breeding ground for what's become the standard for going vertical throughout North America. Its impressive U.S.-based facilities, factory direct sales model, cost-effective and efficient build methods, and keen focus on the customer are all requirements of the highly demanding retail industry that Pip Mobile has dominated for decades. This dominance has carved the path for the creation and rapid growth of Pip Horticulture. From the back rooms of America's largest retailers to indoor commercial grow rooms of the world's top cannabis cultivators, the seeds of Pip Horticulture have been planted. Now, a few years later and with hundreds of facilities increasing their yields in partnership with Pip Horticulture, we are the go-to provider for all things racking and storage throughout the industry. Let Pip Horticulture elevate your cultivation today. NCIA's Cannabis Minority Report is a product of the National Cannabis Industry Association and NCIA's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. We are hosted every week by Khadijah Adams. Our executive producers are Aaron Smith and Vince Chandler. We are directed by Vince Chandler and produced by Bethany Moore and Alexis Olive. Please, please, please find out everything you can about the growing and equitable cannabis industry at thecannabisindustry.org.